This presentation was recorded live at the 19th annual SRI in the Rockies Conference, Beyond Borders, Investing and Partnering for a Sustainable World, held October 26th through 29th, 2008, in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada. Thank you very much for choosing this session. Um, just to make sure you're in the right spot, this is Socially Responsible Investing, SRI Basics. And um, I'll be your convener this afternoon. My name is Fran Teplitz, and I serve as the Managing Director for the Social Investment Forum. We'll be hearing from a number of our panelists this afternoon, and then we'll, um, we want this to be an interactive session. We want to hear what is it about SRI that you feel that you need to know. So we're going to open this up for Q&A. Because this session is being recorded, it's really important that you walk to the center aisle here and use the microphone um, so that we can uh, have this, the questions as well as the answers um, accurately recorded. That would be a really big help to us. Okay, I think those were all of my <laughs> housekeeping items. Um, we have a number of wonderful panelists with us today. Um, I'm just going to get us started with a bit of an overview of what SRI is. And for those of you who may have been at the new participant orientation, you will have heard some of this, but we're hoping that sort of as the information washes over you, uh, maybe that's an easier way um, to learn about some of the terminology and what the strategies are. And again, um, please be thinking about some of the questions that you may have which are most likely shared by others in the room who are um, perhaps new to the field or just putting their toe in the SRI waters. So there's no question that's too basic. Um, we'd like to hear from all of you. Great. So the first question is, indeed, what is SRI? And I do get that question to my office. Um, some people call me and they want to know, what is the federal certification that means something is SRI? It's sort of like organic. You know, in order to get that little green USDA label, you know, organic means something very specific uh, to the federal government. So I have to sort of take a deep breath <laughs> and say, well, actually, the federal government has not actually ruled on certification for socially responsible investing. And there are a number of different definitions for it. Um, Obviously, though, there is a vast and growing field of SRI practitioners, and so we do have sort of some operational definition um, that we use, but I do want to emphasize that there are a number of different approaches and different emphases in the field, um, and you may pick that up uh, while you're here at the conference and uh, just think about how to, how to meld these different ideas and definitions in your mind because there is no one single correct way to define or practice socially and environmentally responsible investing. Basically, within the social investment form, what we've come to agree on is that this is an investment practice that integrates environmental, social, and corporate governance factors into investment decision-making. So you start off with your traditional, rigorous financial uh, metrics and benchmarks, and then there's an additional overlay that SRI brings. And SRI practitioners believe... Um, and understand that there, is, there are additional material factors um, that are social, uh, environmental, or related to corporate governance that need to be taken into account when evaluating um, corporate conduct and corporate performance. That's kind of our working definition at the moment. 
Um, as we mentioned in the previous session, there, there are a number of different terms. Not everybody uses the term SRI. Um, different types of institutional investors, different sectors use a variety of different terms. Some terms are more common in the States. Others are used more frequently in Europe. But a few of them you'll hear are mission-based investing, responsible investing, double bottom line, triple bottom line investing, ethical investing, sustainable investing, green investing, and there, there are some others as well. Um, I think the constituencies that use these different terms are looking, um, you know, they see a nuance um, and some distinction, but the basic working definition that I provided a moment ago does pertain to all of these different terms um, to describe this approach to investing that's looking at additional material factors in evaluating corporations. Okay. So why do we bother with this additional overlay of information? Um, there are a number of different reasons. Um, certainly we believe that SRI provides an opportunity for both individual and institutional investors to have a social impact while at the same time they're achieving their very real financial goals. So whether you're an individual, whether you're a massive pension fund, whether you're a foundation, a university endowment, there are you know, uh, very important financial goals in mind. And at the same time, we know that the power of the dollar can be used in a variety of different ways in that your investments do have social and environmental impacts that can be taken into account for good or for bad. Um, socially responsible investors, you know, empowers investors to take a stance and influence business practices, and our speakers will um, speak in more detail about that. Um, by investing in local communities through community investing, you can see uh, the positive impact of deposits at the community level in struggling communities and underserved communities nationally as well as internationally. Um, and especially at the individual level, people often use a phrase like, I'm looking to do well while, do, uh, while I'm doing good financially. And that SRI is a way to blend the different concerns and the values that people bring um, to, the, to their economic life. There are three primary strategies that the Social Investment Forum uses um, in evaluating socially, socially responsible investing, and we'll hear about all three of these from our panelists today. Community investing, uh, positive and negative screening, and the shareholder advocacy and engagement process. In a nutshell, you can see the frequency of these different core strategies as they're um, employed in the United States. Um, this data is taken from a biennial, biennial report that the Social Investment Forum produces. It's entitled uh, Trends in Socially Responsible Investing, and this is taken from uh, the 2007 report. You'll see that the bulk of SRI activity is engaged in screening, both positive and negative portfolio screening, uh, followed by shareholder advocacy, followed by a smaller portion that's blending both screening and shareholder advocacy. And while community investing is still, you know, by far the smallest slice of SRI activity, it's also the fastest growing. So that's important to bear in mind. We see socially responsible investing increasingly bursting into the mainstream, especially now where everything is green, right? People are looking for ways to green their investments as well, and, and they mean in addition to the financial bottom line. 
Um, we've tracked through our trends report currently $2.71 trillion in assets under professional management that are employing some SRI strategy. Again, that could be screening, shareholder engagement, or community investing. All three of these strategies can be employed by one investor, or you can single track. Um, our goal is to get all investors to use all strategies for the um, you know, deepest level of SRI practice. And we also see a growing number of major U.S. pension funds, uh, major institutions, foundations, and others um, taking part in the shareholder advocacy process and in uh, sending their um, investments to community investing. So across all strategies, we're seeing more and more institutional investors playing a role. Um, this was perhaps most frequently brought to the fore where we saw um, universities, pension funds, um, municipal um, Organizations, a variety of different stripes, taking a stand on Darfur and looking at their portfolios and figuring out what what is being called upon them um, by their investors and by their communities and how they can take a stand um, in relation to that. So that's sort of been one of the more prominent recent activities where we've, where we've seen mainstream institutions um, looking at the relationship between their portfolios and what's happening on the ground in the broader political world. We also see mainstreaming of SRI in the defined contribution plan world. We had conducted a report um, last year uh, with several of our research partners, Mercer and others, and had a number of interesting findings that you'll see here. 19% of the defined uh, contribution plans involved in this survey had already included an SRI option. Um, but Um, 41% of those surveyed said that while they're not doing this, they expect to introduce an SRI option within the next three years, which we found to be very um, interesting and certainly important that people are looking ahead and planning to incorporate this um, approach to investing um, down the line. And 81% of plan sponsors, 72% of the consultants, and 47% of the um, sponsors surveyed predict increasing or at least level demand for SRI over the next five years. So the horizon is looking bright. There are always questions about SRI performance. Um, There have been a number of surveys that show, you know, if you can demonstrate strong performance, sure, people are happy to have an additional overlay that's looking at societal um, and environmental issues. And again, there have been so many academic studies conducted both domestically and on the global level that point to the fact that there's no statistically significant difference in performance if you're looking over the long term. And the key thing is long term. You can't look quarter to quarter. Um, But that SRI investments that now span so many different types of products and asset classes can go toe-to-toe um, with their counterparts in the conventional world. Um, in the prior session, um, there was also reference to a website, www.sristudies.org, and that contains a lot of the academic literature in this area. Um, the social investment form, I want to spend just a moment on that since we serve the industry. We're the only nonprofit membership association dedicated to promoting the concept, practice, and growth of SRI. Many of our members are in this conference, in this room, financial planners and advisors, analysts, banks and credit unions, mutual fund companies, portfolio managers, and and a host of nonprofit organizations, many of whom are engaged in either community investing or in shareholder activism. 
We also include institutional investors like foundations and pension funds, research, and the community investing institutions. If you get involved with us, um, become a member. There are a lot of different opportunities for engagement. Whoops, I went too fast there. Sorry. This is a, a brief list of some of the working groups that we invite you to join once you become a member, focused on specific facets of public policy and the interface with socially responsible investing. Um, and a number of these groups have had pre-conferences prior to the opening of this conference to delve deeper into these issues. Um, for more information, here's our website and our contact information. And I'd now like to turn the microphone over to Frank Altman. One moment. Frank Altman also sits on the board of the Social Investment Forum. He is currently president and CEO of Community Reinvestment Fund USA, or CRF. CRF is the nation's leader in bringing capital to public and private nonprofit community development lenders through the secondary market for loans. Mr. Altman is chairman of the New Markets Tax Credit Coalition and is currently a member of the Center for Community Development Securities of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and he's also um, on the Financial Innovations Roundtable at the University of Southern New Hampshire. So please join me in welcoming Frank, and we'll call up his presentation now. Thanks, Fran. Well, I'm here today to talk, to, to talk specifically about the community investing portion of socially responsible investing, that 1% uh, that you saw uh, in the earlier uh, pie chart. And community investing, really, I, I, I view as the proactive uh, investment activity that tries to put money into areas uh, uh, in community development, primarily low-income communities or uh, mission-oriented organizations that are focusing on sustainability, uh, green jobs, energy conservation, alternative energy, the whole, the whole range of things that people are involved in, but, but try, trying to find ways of, of okay, we'll, leave it. we'll just be very careful here. I hope this is not a, a harbinger of the future of community investing. Uh, try, to, try to find ways of proactively uh, finding opportunities at the community level in which uh, socially motivated investors can uh, invest. And so uh, uh, community investing really is capital from investors and lenders that is directed toward uh, these underserved areas. Uh, it makes it possible for local organizations, oftentimes operating at, uh, at a level that is, that is uh, below the banking level, if you will, uh, to provide financial uh, services to low-income individuals uh, and to supply capital for small businesses, creating jobs, creating uh, opportunities for uh, minority women entrepreneurs and a whole variety of other activities, including affordable housing, uh, health care, uh, primary care clinics in, in low-income areas, um, child care, and uh, charter schools, among others. In addition to supplying badly needed capital in these underserved neighborhoods, uh, community investment institutions provide important services such as education, uh, uh, mentoring, and technical support, uh, in, and particularly financial literacy education. Community invest investment, again, uh, as measured uh, in the report uh, that was cited earlier, has been growing at a rapid pace. Uh, since uh, 1995, it's grown at more than, more than 540%, and it continues to grow as this industry, which is a combination of nonprofit and for-profit and governmental organizations, has come together to find ways of really growing uh, to scale. 
uh, in accessing uh, the capital markets uh, and institutional capital uh, represented by many of you in this room. Well, let, let me uh, try to just give you the overview of the kind of options uh, of the four major categories of community development, uh, the kinds of institutions that are involved. Uh, first of all, there are community development banks. Uh, these are banks that uh, have a, a mission uh, as a community development financial institutions, uh, institution, oftentimes uh, have a certification from the Department of Treasury uh, CDFI fund. These banks, uh, the, the most prominent one uh, uh, known as the Shore Bank, kind of started this whole activity. But now there are uh, literally scores of banks around the country that are, that are doing a double bottom line or triple bottom line lending. Uh, University Bank out, uh, is outside uh, with, a, with a booth, and that's another example of a community development bank. And then there are community development credit unions. Uh, these are uh, credit unions that are focused on not just uh, being a, a repository of, of capital from their members and, and credit for their members, but are focused on uh, particular low-income communities or low-income places uh, where uh, capital needs to flow. And uh, uh, community development credit unions have the uh, unique ability to raise capital from outside of their membership through uh, specific investments that uh, many institutional investors uh, provide to those organizations. Our community development loan funds uh, are funds that, that have uh, been around in communities around the country for many years. Oftentimes these were funds that were started by nonprofit uh, organizations uh, that received money from uh, philanthropically oriented individuals or institutional uh, investors. Um, these funds over time have, have, have kind of morphed into something called a community development a financial institution or a CDFI. Uh, and these are, are institutions that really take uh, investments in the form of program-related investments from foundations or uh, other investments from individuals, religious orders, uh, uh, socially motivated uh, uh, lenders, uh, and then take that money and use it to make loans to, to others uh, in their community, uh, again, for the purposes of uh, community development at, uh, at large. And then finally, um, most of the groups I've been talking about to date uh, so far are using lending as their primary vehicle for getting capital to move into uh, community development. Uh, but there also are uh, community development venture capital funds, or CDVCs, uh, that uh, use uh, uh, socially motivated capital to make equity investments, uh, private investments in, uh, in small businesses uh, where equity, uh, a venture capital uh, type of, uh, uh, of investment is uh, sensible. And those funds obviously are, are working, again, at a double bottom line. Oftentimes they're working in areas that are um, remote, um, areas that don't have a large uh, uh, active uh, equity investing infrastructure, so these uh, community development venture capital funds uh, really fill that role. Um, here is the uh, kind of breakout of uh, community investment institutions uh, uh, by sector, and you can see that community development banks and credit unions are about uh, three-quarters of the activity, and then loan funds and venture capital make up the rest. Common areas that these organizations support, affordable housing, small business and microenterprise, uh, the, and mostly here I'm talking about domestic investments. Community services, these are uh, oftentimes uh, facilities uh, operated by nonprofits. It could be everything ranging from a Goodwill store to um, a daycare center. Uh, the creation of livable wage jobs in many, uh, in many communities, these are high uh, areas of focus. And then training opportunities in financial education and businesses that, in, that uh, support environmentally friendly and beneficial products and services. 
the strategy that uh, that our industry, the, the socially responsible, responsible investment industry, has been pursuing is really one to try to move beyond this one percent, one percent or more in community in community development is a campaign to have social investors shift at least one percent of their investing dollars into community investing, and the goal is to have thirty billion dollars in community investments by two thousand ten. Now. How can this be done? Well, there are a number of tools that have been created, and we're, we're uh, still innovating in this industry. And they range from uh, what are called CEDARS, Certificates of Deposit Account Registry Service, which allows a, an investor to have a uh, FDIC FDIC insured investment uh, placed in uh, community development uh, banks uh, with uh, at, at, at levels that would be higher than the what used to be 100,000 now 250,000 dollar insurance limit. Uh, there is the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, which is a uh, federal agency, part of the Department of the Treasury, that, that capitalizes community development organizations, revolving loan funds in, in local communities, and they always capitalize it based on a match from the private sector or from some other source. So there's an opportunity to get uh, $2 for one, if you will, there uh, through investments uh, in CDFIs. Uh, the industry has uh, tried to, to, to also find ways of helping investors understand uh, the nature of the organizations that they're investing in. And so uh, uh, the Opportunity Finance uh, uh, Network, or OFN, a trade association of community development organizations, has developed something called the Community Development Financial Institutions Assessment and Rating System, or CARS. This is where, ag- where acronyms become much better than the actual names. So the CARS rating basically looks at both the financial soundness and health of the organization as well as its social impact. And so it's a, it's a two-fold rating that, that provides a significant uh, insights into institutional investors who want to understand more about uh, in, uh, institutions that have CARS ratings. And over time, it's hoped that those institutions that have CARS ratings will be able to attract capital uh, more, more advantageously than those who have opted out of the transparency that a CARS label would, would provide. Uh, there have been other a- efforts, the CDFI data project, trying to really understand community impact uh, that's created by uh, uh, community development financial institutions, and obviously uh, community investment pools and other associations have been uh, developed over the years that, that kind of bring this capital into the communities. Um, now I'm going to talk a little bit about the kinds of entities that are out there uh, that could be invested in. They range from community development corporations to community development entities. These are entities that receive uh, tax credits under the federal new markets tax credit, uh, and so this is a federal designation. Uh, there are community development municipal bonds that are that are uh, in the works. Obviously, uh, banks uh, and uh, financial institutions covered by the Community Reinvestment Act uh, find uh, that 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 there is uh, a paucity, if you will, of investment opportunities to meet the investing test under CRA. So there is demand that is being generated uh, by that uh, in, in incentive. Uh, uh, historically, there's been an effort uh, over time to, to have economically targeted investing being done uh, primarily through uh, pension funds. Uh, there's a low-income housing tax credit, uh, which uh, is uh, probably the premier tax credit in generating uh, affordable rental housing in this country. And again, this is an opportunity for many uh, players to play. And there actually is a bigger opportunity that's uh, opened up recently as Fannie Mae has run into its difficulties. Fannie Mae used to be uh, the source of about 50% of all uh, equity investments in these. Uh, and then there are uh, program-related investments, uh, below-market, uh, uh, socially-motivated investments made primarily by foundations, and targeted mortgage-backed securities, collateral mortgage-backed obligations, and I will talk a little bit about those uh, since uh, CRF, my organization, uh, issues those. 
Well, what is the, what is the uh, outcome that everybody is trying to achieve in community investing? Uh, a couple of examples. Here's uh, Esubio Morel, who used a loan from the Capital District Community Loan Fund to, to open Fabio's Grocery in Schenectady, New York. Uh, the store not only supports Fabio's family, but it's a source of neighborhood pride and an important resource for the growing Latino community in that, in that city. Uh, Urban Edge is another example of a non nonprofit community facility. This is a, a nonprofit working to make the Jackson Square neighborhood in Boston uh, an accessible mixed-use development uh, with community facilities that will attract people of all ages. Boston Community Capital, one of the premier community development financial institutions uh, in the country, made its first loan to Urban Edge in 1986 and has since supported projects ranging from affordable housing to a pilot high school for at-risk students and community parks. So this gives you a flavor of the kinds of things that happen on the ground uh, through community investing. And here's another example. Uh, internationally, uh, Sakabayan uh, is a uh, Tagalog word for community. Uh, Opportunity International's loan program for nearly 2,000 tricycle uh, taxi drivers in the Philippines. The borrower's net average of $6 a day provides enough money to support their families, maintain their vehicles, and repay their loans. While they are too poor to obtain credit from banks, basic business skills, training, and peer support uh, keep the loan repayments uh, for the drivers at 99%. And given the environment that we're in right now, that's darn good. So let, let me give you a, a, just a little overview of uh, insight as to how our, our organization works with uh, community investing. Um, community Reinvestment Fund's mission is to transform the community development system by accessing the capital markets on behalf of local lending organizations, the kind that I just described, to enable them to have greater impact on the lives of people and communities that they serve. And most of the groups we work with are serving low-income people or low-income places. Uh, we have, uh, uh, through working, through purchasing loans from local development organizations around the country, we've been able to fund more than a billion dollars in loans and community investment. And we, we source, and, and those loans in turn have generated more than 2,200 uh, jobs in 46 states, about 40,000 uh, total jobs. I'm sorry, 2,200 loans in 46 states, about 40,000 total jobs, uh, about 550 minority jobs, uh, more than 16,000 affordable housing units, and you can see the rest. Ultimately, more than 100,000 families have been served at community facilities. Uh, this gives you a sense of the spread of, uh, of lending partners and the loans. The lending partners are in yellow. Uh, these are the nonprofit community-based lending organizations or governmental entities that are originating these loans. And then the, uh, the red shows you where the loans are located. Um, I always think that community investing is something that you need to think about in terms of a continuum from purely, purely charitable act activities on the one end of the continuum to purely market-based, if you will, on the other. And so call, calling on a, uh, uh, a, a schema that was created by uh, Luther Reagan at the F.B. Heron Foundation, uh, you can see kind of where different uh, types of investment opportunities lie. Uh, people oftentimes think that socially uh, community investing has to be below market, and that's not the case. There are opportunities for the socially motivated investor, whether it's a foundation or an individual, to, to make below market investments or give gifts and grants. But there are also opportunities to make market rate investments. And so what this continuum shows basically is everything from, from the, as Luther says, the riskiest thing that can be done, make a grant, uh, to the, the least risky things that can be done, invest cash either at below market rates in, uh, in, in community development banks or at market rates. Uh, and so you see here, uh, at least in, in CRF's uh, um, perspective, the different types of investments that we use to generate uh, these investments for the capital markets. And what we basically do is we rely on uh, 
uh, foundations, institutional investors, religious institutions, individuals, and banks as uh, the source of social investing uh, for these community development activities. And um, we use uh, the power of uh, the capital markets and something that was uh, once very innovative called securitization uh, to uh, access the capital markets. So this, this, uh, the last slide just kind of show how community investing can work. Uh, we, we use about 2% of the capital we raise from charitable contributors, primarily foundations and individuals. And then we supplement that with investments, program-related investments uh, made by foundations that are senior unsecured loans to CRF uh, and uh, uh, equity-equivalent investments, which are un uh, uh, subordinated unsecured loans made by banks. These two generally account for about 20% of the capital that we need. And then we use that capital to take the risk of first loss in uh, asset-backed securities that we issue uh, that are rated by S&P, rated AAA down to uh, single B, and uh, sold uh, to institutional investors, either motivated uh, uh, institutions or institutions just looking for a rate of return. Uh, and that way we're able to access a substantial amount of that capital that's out there in the capital markets when they're functioning well. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when, uh, we're, we're, when we're back in business uh, with, uh, uh, with, a, with a functioning capital market. But in any regard, this industry, the, the community uh, development uh, uh, finance industry and uh, community investing uh, in the SRI world is a very important component to how uh, SRI can, uh, can be the leader, if you will, in bringing uh, capital back to local communities. So I'll stop there. And uh, did I didn't get the hook, so I guess I did all right. Thanks. Thank you very much. Again, it was Frank Altman from the Community and Reinvestment Fund. Our next speaker is also a Social Investment Forum board member, Joanne Dowdell. Joanne Dowdell is the Senior Vice President and Director of Corporate Responsibility for Sentinel Investments. She directs the firm's sustainable investing effort focusing on corporate, social, and environmental research, as well as strategy development implementation of the firm's shareholder activism initiatives. Joanne's professional experience expand, uh, spans over 20 years. Before joining Sentinel as a result of the acquisition of the Citizens Funds, she spent five years at Citizens where she held a similar role. So we'll bring up Joanne's presentation. Thank you. Uh, this is Joanne Dowdell. Thank you, Fran. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. This is an absolutely tremendous uh, group that we have here at SRI in the Rockies this year. And considering the way the markets have been, I really applaud all of you for making the trip here to uh, Whistler. I'm here to talk to you today about the second leg of the stool, if you will, and that's screening. Uh, one of the things that I'd like to do is get a sense of who's in the room. How many of you currently are in the financial advisor category, working with clients that are interested in SRI? Okay. And then how many of you are involved on the research side or the portfolio management side where you're actually helping to construct the portfolios and pulling together the, the investable universe. Okay, all right, excellent. Well, one of the things that um, 
We look at, as, in, as far as the screening, there are two basic concepts. The exclusionary screens, those characteristics or industries or sectors that you may exclude from investment completely before you do anything else. The second are qualitative screens, and those are the criteria or characteristics that you're looking at that help you evaluate the risk that may be inherent in selecting a particular security. For exclusionary screens, most of them focus on, today at least, the production of alcohol, tobacco, Nuclear is one that is excluded out of a lot of portfolios, though I know it has been raised certainly uh, within the broader community as far as looking at renewables and alternative energy sources that there may be some shift in that. Um, also uh, gambling, firearms, and weaponry, those are some of the typical exclusionary screens that you will find. How many of you currently use exclusionary screens in, in your selection process? Okay. Qualitative screens are looking more at the broader issue areas, environmental considerations, corporate governance, health and safety, labor, human rights, diversity issues, and those are points that I think depending upon the, the investor themselves, where they're waiting or what the level of importance is on each of those characteristics. There is no single way to approach this. And just last week I spoke to a group of advisors and one of the questions that they had was, well, doesn't this process constrain your universe? I said, well, okay, let me ask you, if you're a value investor, you're looking at certain characteristics and aren't you starting with a broad universe and you put in all of the uh, variables that you are interested in, market cap, PE, peg ratios, all of that, and you come up with a universe that you're left with that you can select from, correct? Well, yes. Well, this is, this is the same. It's just adding another layer and looking a little deeper into the performance of companies. So again, exclusionary, some of the typical screens, tobacco, nuclear, alcohol, weapons production, lack of diversity, gambling. On the qualitative side, looking at labor and employee relations, international human rights, environment, corporate governance considerations, good and useful products, what are the services or products that the company is engaged in the business, and how the company relates to the community where they are operating. For those of you who may not be familiar with one of the uh, key pieces of research that the Social Investment Forum puts out, it is the Trends Report. It is the uh, I'll say the document of record on screening and socially responsible investing. And the mainstream media, Wall Street, look to the trends report to help give them the framework for, for this business. 
some of the common screens that we went through, this slide basically shows the, the assets and billions of dollars of those uh, uh, managers that are using these this screening methodology. So tobacco, $174 billion in assets under management exclude tobacco, alcohol, and then labor. But you see tobacco and alcohol really dominate uh, this slide. We've seen some movement in the last five years, certainly, with environment. I think in the last report, the 2005 report, environment was had held the third position. Now it has gone down to the fourth because of a lot of the labor considerations um, and problems with uh, union representation at companies. So we're seeing an expansion in the labor category. For our process at Sentinel, and I'm not going to like beat this <laughs> into the ground, but just a, to give you a framework of one approach that can be used. Our portfolio management team is the first uh, point of consideration for our process, and they look at the exclusionary screens and then submit those names to us. Once a company passes the exclusionary process, it is available to be invested in. We try to shrink the amount of time that a portfolio manager has to use in order to take, take a position in a particular name. The uh, qualitative screening is the secondary, more in-depth approach that we look at. And what we're looking for there are the positive attributes of a particular company. We're also looking, quite frankly, at some of the problem areas. Are there a host of lawsuits that are outstanding for a particular firm? Are there, is there a pattern of behavior that might lead us to believe that there is too great a risk for inclusion in the portfolios, and as such, we would then reject the company for investment if we felt that risk was too great. That decision falls in our department, and then the portfolio managers have their universe that, that they are working with. One of the things that... Um, with screening in particular, again, that you may want to look at doing is writing down all the different criteria. What are the things that are important in any given area? So if you're looking at environmental considerations, as an example, you might want to look at does the company have an environmental management system? If so, how do they go about implementing those practices? What is their disclosure of any risk to the business for uh, changes in climate? Uh, do they disclose that information? How transparent is that company? And I think transparency and disclosure, certainly across all criteria, is critically important. As investors, we need to know what the risks are inherent in a particular investment. And um, certainly for uh, many, disclosure and transparency rise very high 
as far as level of importance when looking at these other qualitative characteristics of companies. The other aspect that you may want to do if you're working with clients is to develop a questionnaire for them to understand what their threshold is, what, what are the issues that are of importance to them. And that will help you in identifying those funds that may most, may match their uh, uh, criteria most closely. Uh, you can update them annually on any changes. The other thing that you may want to do is to really refer them to the Social Investment Forum's website, which is excellent. It's a wealth of information. There's some tools there. If you haven't taken advantage of them, that I encourage you to do so. A wealth of information that can help you in, in building your practices. For the portfolio managers and the analysts in the room, I would say that the greatest area of pushback that you, you may experience is with regards to performance. This is a question that, that we get a lot. Doesn't screening really, I mean, using these, these screens, doesn't that really just, you just have to give up that performance, don't you? You're just sacrificing performance. Well, no, you're not sacrificing performance. I think it comes down to, um, in any portfolio management uh, scheme, that you are looking at across the board, maybe you're making sector bets where you shouldn't be making sector bets. I, I would argue that sustainable or socially responsible investing, whatever you want to call it, adding this level of review and consideration for companies can help you stave off potential blow-ups in your portfolios. And um, welcome to the world of SRI. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting time for all of us. I think that we may see a greater move in the mainstream investment community taking a look at how we've been doing things for decades and hopefully employ some of the same strategies that we have been using and that we believe help build our portfolios and protect our clients. Thank you very much, and I look forward to questions. Am I getting any faster at this? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Our next speaker will address the issue of shareholder advocacy and engagement. Um, I'm very delighted to welcome Alia Kayal and wanted to offer her a special thank you because we had a speaker cancellation and Alia has stepped into the breach and we're very grateful for that. Um, Alia Kayal is Vice President at Calvert of Research. Um, Calvert, as many of you know, is a leading SR mutual fund company and Alia has been with the firm for the past 14 years. 
She, uh, her background is in international human rights, and she has also worked on the rights of indigenous peoples. Let me get this into slideshow mode. Great. So please join me in welcoming Alia Kayal. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted to be here. Um, now we come to the third leg of the stool. We've gone from community investing to research and screening. And now we come to shareholder advocacy um, to, to round out socially responsible investing. In terms of t definitions and tools, what is shareholder advocacy? Basically, it means using your voice as an investor to push for improved corporate performance, to push for better practices. Um, it can take a whole uh, range of ways to, to actually accomplish this. There are many ways. There are many tools. Um, in the U.S., we use certain tools. Um, I know when we're talking to international companies, companies in Asia, you might want to use different tools. But we just wanted to highlight a little bit about what tools are available to you when you're, when you, when you're doing or you would like to do shareholder advocacy or shareholder engagement. Same thing, really. Um, you can write letters, writing letters to companies to express um, uh, your concern or to put forth your position. As we know through research and um, after being uh, in this industry for 14 years, there are no perfect companies, absolutely not. Even the companies that make it into our portfolios are, are far from perfect. Um, so here's a way, a tool that we have to engage with the companies. We can, as I said, write letters. We can, we can call the company. Uh, we can vote a proxies. Uh, we can also engage in more structured dialogue, um, such as filing shareholder resolutions. In the U.S., we are, we're privileged and, and uh, have certain rights that many uh, in Europe and in Asia do not, in that we can, as long as we hold $2,000 worth of shares, in a, in a security for a certain period of time, we can file a resolution with the company. That's not uh, necessarily the case in many, many countries, most countries. Um, so certainly if you are a U.S. investor, you can exercise those rights. You can also participate in multi-stakeholder standard setting initiatives. So you don't necessarily have to feel like you're all alone in this. You're the only one asking the company about these issues. There are many, many organizations, many of our peers, um, organizations such as ICCR, and many CIF members that are working on these, uh, on these issues. And you can certainly take a look and see who else is working on these issues and join them. In terms of multi-stakeholder, it's not just investors. What's interesting um, in, in the past few years is we've seen NGOs as, par as part of these uh, stakeholder dialogues. We've seen labor unions. Um, there's multiple, you know, we've seen even just consumers, customers. Uh, so there's a number of groups involved in it with investors. Um, so it's really gone beyond just investor engagement. Again, benchmarking industries, publishing reports as uh, our peers uh, start looking at industries or start publishing reports on issues. You can highlight the leaders and the laggards. And when you engage with companies, you can certainly say, well, this particular company in your industry um, is doing X, Y, and Z or has published or disclosed disinformation. How about you? 
you know. So there are there are ways of of comparing and contrasting um, their performance, and then engaging in public policy debates um, if that's if that's possible for you to do. Um, we're we're based in Bethesda, Maryland, so being close to Washington D.C. has has its advantages. But in terms of basically engaging in those debates, um, meeting, um, going to hearings, um, testifying, um, and just being up uh, up to speed on what's going on in the regulatory uh, environment would help uh, tremendously in, in advocacy as well. Why, why, sh- why do we want to do it? Why should we do it? Uh, one, because we can. Um, as I said earlier, as U.S. investors, we certainly have rights uh, and, and many, much more than in other countries. But as investors in general, we have rights and, and companies have an obligation to, to respond to our concerns. Um, it is an essential engagement. Um, I would argue that um, I'm actually head of head of research at Calvert, but research itself is is, is not enough to have uh, both um, a community investing in advocacy and engagement. It really is a holistic approach to uh, you have to really try to find different ways to make change, and 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 this is a very essential essential tool. Um, we also improve prospects um, for financial outperformance. We are pushing for improved governance. Um, and we also deepen our understanding of the company and, and confidence in senior management. One of the we have carbon disclosure project, but one of the other ones um, that I've been working on very closely is the human rights impact assessments. Really writing to companies, and not just in the extractive se- sector, but writing to them and saying, "Have you basically assessed?" Um, your human rights uh, impact in certain countries um, that you're operating in, and can you, you know, would you be able to publish that information? So, basically, looking at those aspects, how do we find the issues? Um, one way, as um, Joanna mentioned earlier, is just basically conducting research. As you do research, as you do screening for your products, that generates questions because you find. Um, areas that you don't know much about or there's no information, um, and that can lead to shareholder engagement. You can also do reviews of key industries. You can do industry reviews and take a look at, you know, keeping up to date on major challenges within that industry. Um, the research process also includes monitoring of NGOs, and that has been such a big change since I've been at Calvert. Um, and um, I often tell people that they don't realize when I first started at Calvert, there was no Internet. <laughs> um, <and laughs> people just uh, kind of freak out when I say that. But um, there's, you know, the, with, with technology um, and the increased sophistication of NGOs, um, monitoring what's going on in, in the NGO world helps tremendously in terms of um, the issues. Uh, again, as I said earlier, tracking of regulatory and legislative developments, that also sheds light uh, for industry. And then companies are increasingly also publishing CSR, sustainability reports, and that's also often a, a way for us to take a look at what the issues are um, for productive dialogue. Um, there's some core themes, and I, Joanne uh, mentioned this earlier, uh, that guide all, basically all of the shareholder advo- advocates uh, in, in our in our field. One, the big one, really, is transparency and disclosure. Um, uh, you'll find a lot of us, particularly at Calvert, um, many of us don't use uh, questionnaires necessarily. We go with public 
publicly available information. And it's not a question of just obviously the, the investors, but there's, there's a real need for the public to know um, in terms of right to know. So transparency and disclosure are critical, and we're always pushing that through a variety of issues. Good governance and accountability, need I say more as to what's going on right now. And, and then long-term sustainability, obviously. Um, and they play out in a whole range of issues. Those are just some of the ones that I've listed there. Um, but it just, it, these, these are sort of core themes that you'll, you'll see within, uh, almost all of the, um, the SRI firms. Um, one of the big challenges is there's so many issues and we have only so many people. <laughs> you know, so how do we figure out which ones to focus, which ones not to, which ones should be joined? At Calvert, this is uh, one attempt to basically take a look at what are the priorities and, you know, if, if you can set yourself this goal in terms of looking at what are my priorities. Obviously, I can't address every single issue, but if you can set priorities, and those are the four that we have, you can say, all right, these are, these are the issues that we will be looking at for this year or for the next five years, you know, depending on it. But I think setting priorities will help a lot so it doesn't appear to be so overwhelming. Um, there are also synergies between the priorities or between the issues. Here's some examples. Um, for social and environmental governance matters, um, disclosure and climate change, obviously a lot of synergies there. And diversity and governance, we want boards to look like America, you know, and um, adding women and minorities to boards can broaden the perspectives. So there's a lot of synergies, and I, th I would um, urge that we don't silo all of the different issues into different, you know, sort of compartments and, and really understand what the links are between all of them. There have been a lot of recent uh, interesting trends in, in shareholder engagement, and basically now with corporate responsibility and sustainability, it's become much more mainstream. We hear about it uh, a lot more. It's definitely more than 15 years ago when I was trying to explain to people what I did for a living, and that was, uh, you know, just, just got glossy-eyed with that. But it, it's, it's changed a lot, and people have a general understanding, not necessarily complete, a general understanding what, what this means. Um, entry of NGOs in the corporate engagement arena, very sophisticated um, uh, tools being used by NGOs, and they've become much more savvy also about how to engage with companies. There's also a growing appreciation of materiality and you know, extra financial. What, what, what are some of the issues? Climate change is an example, but what are some of the other issues um, in terms of materiality and environmental, social, and governance factors and their relations to financial performance? And finally, major institutional investors are now allies. And um, years ago, uh, there was this feeling of, well, each firm does its own advocacy and this is our territory and our issue. And certainly there are uh, firms that take leadership uh, in certain areas, but I'm finding there's a lot more collaboration, collaboration even across to Europe and other areas um, with um, SRIs, between SRI firms, between labor, between uh, religious investors, um, really coming together on a number of issues, and that's really heartening to see. Finally, this is my last slide. In terms of the results, 
people say, well, okay, that's fine and good, but what's been happening, uh, you know, is it successful? Yeah, we believe it is. We've been doing it for many years now. Um, after dialoguing with Nike and Gap, um, they've published really groundbreaking reports on, on labor conditions, and that was just, they took a leadership position. Nobody had ever done that before. Um, we're also working with the U.S. government and trade associations and uh, brands, apparel brands, to challenge child labor practices in Uzbek cotton, uh, the Uzbek cotton industry. So these are just examples of, of the successes we've had, and I'm happy to give some more examples later in a Q&A. Um, but uh, if you have any inform- um, questions, you know, please feel free to contact me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Alia. So I hope that was a good overview for you. So we've covered community investing, portfolio screening, the shareholder advocacy and engagement process. It's a lot. Um, (laughs) But we hope we've given you some grounding, and I'd really like to invite anyone who has a question to the microphone. I'm in the middle of the aisle. And feel free to ask a question of um, any of our panelists here today. Thank you. A senior investment advisor who isn't in this field at all said, well, I know that the socially responsible funds, you know, yield about the same amount, but he was, he said he wasn't willing to take off the amount of money, the percentage uh, for all your research. So that was, do you follow the question? Mm-hmm. Okay, the idea was he, he says, okay, I, I agree they give the same yield, but it costs the investors too much because they have to pay on top of it for the uh, offer the research you do. So could you explain how that works? Who pays for the research? Okay. They, I'll take that one. There are a number of ways that research can be acquired, if you will. One is through soft dollars based on uh, relationships with the uh, trading desk that the trading desk has. The other is really f- direct from the, uh, the research buz- budget of, in, in our case, from my department's budget. Um, I think that as assets grow within the portfolios, those costs naturally come down. And if you are looking across all SRI funds, they're fairly competitive with prices, but as far as fee structure, but there's no way at this point, just based on assets under management, that we would ever compete with a Vanguard or American funds uh, just by sheer volume alone. Um, I think some of the ways that the costs can be managed is if you're doing the research yourself and a lot of it can be done without purchasing research from other firms but then that becomes a resource issue within your own your own organization hi i'd like to ask a question for uh, mr altman uh, or anybody who wants to field it, uh, but it's about community investing. I noticed on the map where you had a distribution of the activity, community investing activities, it was 
very region, there were very regional aspects to it, and I know that part of community investing is a local, regional thing sometimes. But I was just wondering if you could explain why I just saw Minnesota had tons of, <laughs> of stuff. And I know there might be some reasons, but I'd love to hear about Okay. Uh, well, that, that was a map that was uh, specifically germane to Community Reinvestment Fund and the loans that we've purchased over the last uh, uh, two, decade, two decades almost. So we started, we, we are, our headquarters is Minnesota, Minneapolis. So we started there, and you'd see more activity there because we've been there longer. Uh, uh, but that being said, uh, there are literally thousands of community-based organizations around the country uh, that are engaged in investing in at the neighborhood level or at uh, uh, you know the a regional level. Uh, there are many organizations that are focused on empowerment zones or uh, you know rural multi-county zones that are trying to diversify their economies. And so, even even with that map, that's just a that's just scratching the surface of uh, the potential out there in terms of groups that are on the ground at the community level and want to find a way of getting more capital to flow into their communities. So build, being able to build a bridge through SRI, through uh, through the creation of investment vehicles like um, uh, asset-backed securities, community development asset-backed securities, or um, uh, new markets tax credits uh, really is a way of uh, – that map is indicative, I think, of what could happen uh, in, in many more states and, and regions um, – as SRI matures. So that $30 billion goal that we have for 1% in community investment, um, uh, we, have a, we have a ways to go there, but th we also have a real opportunity uh, on the ground. Ms. Um, Dado, this is a question for you. And it relates to where the social screening would fit into a company structure. You mentioned in-house in social screening. Um, and do you think that that can be fully integrated with the rest of a stock analysis, like the financial analysis, or should be that should that be something that is strictly separated as to not have kind of a carryover influence from one influencing the other um, and then basically a doc is screened socially and then sent to a financial analysis based on that screening? Good question. I would say our process is the reverse. The fundamental analysis is conducted first and then the, um, well, the exclusionary screens, the fundamental analysis, and then the qualitative review. I would say that it depends on how the firm is structured. If your portfolio management team is in-house, it has been my experience, certainly, that working closely with the equity analysts and the portfolio managers is a natural benefit that comes. There's there's a more open line of communication. The learning curve is is lessened, and I would argue that as fiduciaries, it is our uh, our job to deliver the best possible performance for our shareholders. So integrating the corporate, social, and environmental screening process for us is just another uh, way of evaluating risk, and that is something that that we pay very close attention to, certainly. We have a, a, a quality bias at Sentinel, um, and our equity analyst team is very involved in the process of, of evaluating companies. 
So they, they will come to us with questions about an environmental situation or, gee, what do you think about this before they put a name into the queue? You know, can you take a quick look at this issue? What do you think uh, the potential risk might be? It depends. <laughs> uh, this question is for uh, Mr. Dowdell. Um, I was wondering, once they, a uh, company passes through the screening and uh, say that they get in, uh, obviously there's going to be like a spectrum of companies once they're actually screened and are acceptable. Um, so I was just wondering, uh, how does your company have uh, like various kind of uh, like benchmark levels of funds that uh, some are more responsible than others, and then once they're placed into one of these classes, if you have them, uh, do you, is there a way that you like encourage companies to kind of move in between, I guess, upward through the classes? We don't, as, as if I'm understanding your question, are there uh, different levels of Corporate social responsibility, maybe a step program uh, as we look at companies. For us, no, we don't have that type of uh, process. Sentinel has both sustainable and mainstream mutual fund products that um, across the board there is a quality bias and also a very um, stringent uh, risk uh, risk profile, minimizing risk in the portfolios. So the companies on the sustainable funds, certainly there's a broad universe of uh, those. We have two, a large cap and a mid cap fund. And we do maintain, now this might be one of the steps, we do maintain a watch list. So those companies that we feel have a greater level of risk but have not failed our criteria, we will put on a watch list. If they're butting right up against, against that rejection, uh, we will put them on a watch list, and then we have a system in place to monitor the activity. Oh, I just lost something. Back? Okay. To monitor uh, the activity on that specific issue. Did that, does that help? Okay. <laughs> Um, this is a question for anybody who wants to venture an opinion. Um, when I was coming to this conference, I got a lot of eye rolling, you know, as though this is another one of my crazy ideas. Um, and yet, the other, my personal opinion is that with the financial crisis we're seeing today, could this be a moment in time where we all step back and say, Maybe our old tools weren't working as well as we thought, and would you say this is an opening for us? Um, or do you think we're all going to regress and say, you know, it's all about ExxonMobil because we need to make money? 
you want to come into <laughs> I think I think there's three ideas yeah. here. So <laughs> go ahead. Oh, good. Well, go ahead. I'll, good. Well, I'll pitch in. Absolutely, I think this is an, a moment in time for our business, the business that we're in. Um, I would say that climate change, certainly uh, with the aid of the social investment forum and some of the activities and series, making public awareness, elevating it, and really bringing to the mainstream the critical risks inherent in some business operations to climate change, as well as some opportunities that might exist. And this is an area that we evaluate and have been for a long time. Um, the uh, Enron and WorldCom blow-ups, again, another opportunity as far as corporate governance considerations. I think we'll see that again here now with uh, CEO pay, executive compensation, as well as uh, more board accountability. Um, so yes, I do think that this is this is another opportunity to for our industry to really have our voices be heard and um, to lend even more credibility to what we've been doing for a very long time. I would I would add on the engagement side is absolutely yes. Here's another opportunity to, if if any of us uh, invest in those in those companies in those sectors, here's an opportunity to basically uh, open the door to talk to them about these issues. So you know there's there's opportunities both on the research side but also on the engagement side to see um, how the companies are responding to to the crisis. Um, and what they're doing, uh, not only on the government regulatory side, but what are, what are the company's actual performance? What are they going to do uh, on these issues? So uh, we definitely think that, that that's, a, that's an opportunity. There may be also another story, which we, we haven't thought about it, but in terms of taking a look at your portfolios to see where you're not invested in some of those companies and why not. You know, was it a screening issue or was it something else? So taking a look at not only your investments, but why were you not invested, why were some of you not invested in those companies? So it's, um, I think there's, there's definitely an opportunity for SRI to engage there. Thank you. I'll jump in from the debt side, and I have to say people have been rolling their eyes at me for a long time, too. So uh, if you think about uh, securitization and the, and the mortgage market uh, meltdown or the credit market meltdown, you know, what, what, what is behind that? Well, there's a, there are a lot of different elements. Uh, there cl- clearly was um, um, a set of incentives that everybody got, got uh, a profit uh, by passing the risk on to somebody else. If you look at community, so, I, so I'd say that's one of the basic issues. Uh, it was not a transparent uh, system at all. As, as we're seeing now, we can't seem to unwind any of these securities because nobody knows what they have. Uh, so their, their transparency was missing. Uh, I think if you look at, at uh, the community investing side of the world, it is just the opposite. We are, uh, this, as an industry, we're very focused on uh, transparency, on what I would call responsible lending and responsible investing. Uh, community development organizations uh, uh, really focus on on the th- the big three C's in credit, and character is one of those. Understanding the borrower, uh, all of those things uh, were not in place 
uh, in, the, in the mortgage meltdown. People were buying things based on misplaced concreteness, thinking that the rating was what they were buying, and they were, they were not looking under the hood and seeing, you know, what, what actually is, who are the borrowers, what's the nature of the lenders and how they're, how they're originated. So, yes, I think, uh, I think as people are looking for beacons now of how to do this right, uh, the way the community investing world has been operating for the last uh, 20 or 30 years is really the, the way that the rest of the capital markets are going to have to go. There's going to have to be retained uh, interest in, in risk uh, in, in any uh, uh, securitized or bundled transactions. There's going to have to be much more disclosure and transparency, and we know how to do that in the community investing world, uh, and maybe the rest of the financial markets will find a way to do that as well. These are all very, very excellent questions. I think we have time for one more, and then I'm afraid we'll have to conclude for this afternoon. However, maybe, <laughs> maybe some of our um, panelists can stay afterwards for a little huddle if there are additional burning questions. Please, the gentleman at the mic. Uh, this question is primarily for, for Frank Altman. Uh, Frank, I work with uh, University Bank, and as you mentioned at the beginning yes. of your presentation, we are a CDFI bank. And I wanted to give a practical example uh, that we're working on right now and get your suggestions on how uh, some uh, increase in community investment can occur here. Uh, we're launching a Sunrise Homeownership Alliance, which is really a collaboration between the cities, St. Paul and Minneapolis, uh, the Family Housing Fund, two nonprofits whose primary goal is to help facilitate affordable housing for individuals who, who can't obtain it in a traditional sense, and University Bank. And part of that is providing a collaborative funding mechanism to allow folks to be able to obtain homeownership using contract for deed vehicle. The party that is actually delivering that contract for deed is the nonprofit. We're simply facilitating from a funding side, and, and our borrower is the nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Now, as a regulated institution, of course, we have certain limits. We have to make sure we're underwriting adequately that loan to the nonprofit. And we also have to monitor and maintain uh, good records uh, in the process. And we also have limitations on how much we can lend on a loan-to-value. But there's a great collaboration between all of those organizations and, and what we run into as a community banking institution uh, is a, a lending limit issue. We can go out and, as we have, and deliver $2 million as part of our program launch. That's our commitment. But at that point, we can't lend any more. What we'd like to be able to do is actually sell participations mm -hmm. in that. And we can do that with community banks in the neighborhood, but we'd also like to expand that and to see if institutional or uh, foundational funds can look at a participation as an avenue for community investment. And I'd be curious as to your input on that. Thank you. Well, I think, I, I think that... That's another example of kind of the, the creativity and the uh, innovation that's going on in community investing. So uh, um, oftentimes there's a, there's a capital constraint and there's a capital resource someplace else. And what we try to do in community investing, whether it's banking or uh, uh, community loan funds or others, is to find a way of uh, bridging that gulf between where the money is and where the need is. And so what you're describing is a particular need that's a constraint based on the size of an institution and, re and regulatory requirements. Uh, so uh, participations can be a very uh, viable vehicle for other banks to, to be able to uh, provide a capital or overline or, or participate in uh, funding of these, these types of pools. So I think, I think it's a great idea. Do we have time for one more? One oh, more. Okay. <laughs> You've got it. <laughs> okay. 
Well, then, I'd like to really thank all of our panelists this afternoon and all of you in the audience um, for your excellent questions and attention. We are about to move into the reception, which will take place in the foyer just outside. And again, feel free to talk to any of us up here on the podium. We'd be happy to talk with you in more detail. Thank you again.